Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to this, the latest of the cost chats between friends that are run by Practico during the period of the pandemic. Um, today, the, the friends are Andrew Hogan, cost counsel from King's Chambers in Manchester, and welcome to Andrew. Um, Andy Ellis, the managing director of Practico, and me, Jeremy Morgan, consultant to Practico and retired cost counsel. Just to give you a, a taster of the highlights of things we might be talking about, um, a quick look at how COVID has been for Andrew Hogan. Um, a quick discussion, or perhaps not quite so quick discussion, of the new practice direction on witness statements in the business and property courts. May not seem terribly costly to everybody, but it's certainly got some implications for costs and is uh, an important issue for everybody, anybody, anyway. Um, informed consent in solicitor and client assessments. We look at a couple of cases. They're about very low value claims, but uh, in case you feel as a commercial practitioner that you're free from any such challenges, um, you, you never know whether someone might have you in their sights and be able to argue similar points. Um, then possibly a quick look at budget variations. And finally, um, the question of whether there might one day be cost management for experts' fees. But starting off, um, I'd like to ask Andrew uh, about his experience of practice during the lockdown. We've had the views of this, the senior cost judge in one of these chats just before Christmas and of Andrew post-QC uh, in the last chat. And it'd be interesting to have a different perspective from Andrew Hogan. Thanks, Jeremy. I suppose, um, really, I talk from my own experience based upon the fact that I do substantial amounts of work in the county court uh, and in the regions, as well as the SCCO in London. And the perception that I have is that over the last year or so, it's really been um, a justice system split into two. Um, in the aftermath of the first lockdown in March last year, I think it's fair to say that the High Court and also the SCCO, um, as part of the London-based courts, moved relatively swiftly, and although there were hiccups, relatively seamlessly towards working remotely, with provision for remote hearings, electronic bundles, matters of that nature, all coming on stream fairly quickly. Out in the regions, it's been a very different story because the county courts have struggled with resources. They've also struggled with the fact that in some circumstances, they've been crushed by the sheer amount of other more urgent stuff they have to deal with, particularly the family cases. And um, matters such as cost assessments have very definitely gone to the back of the queue. Um, at a very early stage, uh, HMCTS um, started to triage their work. They listed it in stage one, stage two, stage three, according to how essential it was to be done. And cost assessment were right at the very bottom of the pile. Um, and I think it's taken quite a while for matters to sort of be brought up um, to a more equivalent level to the High Court and the SCCO. And of course, again, it's right to say that we're not out of the woods yet. So I think there are going to be more um, problems um, as the, the last few months, hopefully, of this COVID pandemic unfold. It seems that the, the SCCO has handled um, the question of um, bundles of documents for detailed assessment um, exceptionally well, and surprisingly well, even probably to the surprise of the senior cost judge. 
Um, has that been true also in the county courts or, or not? I think the problem with the county courts is that they lack a decent file upload system. So the SCCO was gearing up even before the pandemic to moving more stuff digitally online. And in effect, they had a, a sort of trail set out before them. But in the county courts, it's often hit and miss as to whether the documents reach the judge at all. Um, some of them are dependent upon email. Um, some of them will cobble together file share services. And I have a case, uh, cost budgeting uh, case on Thursday in Cambridge, where the court has insisted on paper bundles, which have had to be lodged uh, well in advance, uh, presumably so the COVID germs can die off before the judge touches them. Uh, but it really is as random as that, I think. And we thought that, Sili that Cambridge was the Silicon Valley of, uh, of England and Wales. <laughs> Bit, bits of it may be, but not the county court. <laughs> anyway, well, that's an interesting alternative perspective on, on um, how things have gone. Um, moving on then to the new practice direction on witness statements in the business and property courts. A lot of different views on whether it's a good thing, a bad thing, and uh, whether it'll have knock-on impact on costs. What's the, what's the Andrew Hogan take on that? Well, I have to say, Jeremy, that when I read this, and I've been writing articles commenting on civil procedural matters for about 25 years, um, I've never seen a document like it. I've never seen a document which is so prescriptive in its terms, and which also incorporates an element of psychobabble into it, in terms of what it's attempting to achieve. Um, and I suppose if we try and unpick why it's emerged now at this stage, uh, the starting point represents the degree of um, exasperation amongst the higher judiciary, amongst the witness statements that come before them. So in a sense, this is the judge's revenge, which is now being put into practice direction form. Uh, and secondly, it builds very strongly and explicitly upon the Guestman line of authority whereby you have this um, perception, belief, evaluation that memory works in a certain way and therefore judges should be approaching um, their evaluation of witness evidence in a particular way. And of course, what that means is that um, tried and tested formulae from years, behind, uh, years ago along the lines of, I saw the witness gave evidence. He struck me as a credible witness. I like the way his demeanor uh, uh, came across in court and the way that he answered questions thoughtfully. All of that goes by the by. Instead, you're looking um, at the, the documentary evidence with the witness evidence, the oral evidence, really being a little froth on top. And I think, in a sense, that does reflect changing fashions, but also perhaps a changing world, because in many cases there are going to be what I'd call digital fingerprints all over the evidence, emails, documents, um, matters of that nature, which probably are the most significant piece of the evidence because they're contemporaneous. But of course, this has limitations. And if you were dealing with something such as, I don't know, a road traffic accident claim or a personal injury claim, this approach has very little, if any, relevance in circumstances where you can't tell from um, documents whether someone's indicator was on or not or whether they looked in their rearview mirror or not at a particular point. The two immediate problems that struck me though for people looking at this and having to deal with it 
is the first of all that it arrives all in one blow. There's no transitional provision at all. So from the 6th of April, even if you've been engaged in the case for three years, you suddenly have to get a signed witness statement if you don't have one already, which complies with all the requirements of the practice direction. Um, and the second aspect is, of course, the cost consequences. You may well have a cost budget, cost management order, which has been calculated that your witness statements will be taken in a particular way by particular personnel. Um, and that suddenly is blown away as an assumption. Let me give you an example. Um, witness statements may often be put together by um, a team. So you'll have the, 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 the supervisor at the top um, exercising a benign or benevolent influence, but a lot of the grunt work being done by people who are at a lower level of seniority and accordingly cheaper. But if you're sitting there um, thinking that you've got to um, provide supervision, you need to be asking yourself questions like, do I believe that my team can ask non-leading questions? Do I believe that they have the skills to deal with what uh, the practice direction is requiring them to do? Do I put them in the firing line as, as having to give the certificate of compliance, um, which may be something which uh, is turned against them if there are problems with the witness statement further down the line at trial? And, and so all of those issues, I think, uh, are, are, are immediate uh, and really quite difficult for people having to do this on a day-to-day -day basis to deal with. What about the um, the idea that you can't really use the witness statement or any of the witness statements as a sort of chronology to explain your case? So that was what I always used to do. It was a wonderful way of introducing a case. And it did keep your um, it's got an argument down a bit. Um, what do you think is going to be the impact of, of that particular um, line of approach? Well, I think it could go one of two ways, Jeremy. The, 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 the first is that it may be that um, the sort of chronology continues in the witness statement, but shorn of reference to the documents, which seems to be the key point. They don't want people regurgitating or referencing emails and contractual documentation. So you might have a sort of chronology light. Um, the other way of doing it is that you, you ask yourself, well, we need a chronology. We can get a chronology by the, the, the document. Do we really need witness statements at all? Um, in these circumstances, because if the, the witness has nothing to add to what's set out in the emails, um, then you, you start asking that sort of question. Now, of course, it can be um, more subtle than that. It may be, well, that's what the email said, but I never read it or I didn't receive it. Or uh, I interpret it to, to mean X while I can see that the other side thought it meant Y. Those sort of points may still emerge. Um, but it's, it, it's going to be interesting to see how this sort of um, beds down in practice, because as I say, I've never seen such a prescriptive uh, set of provisions in any rule or practice direction in the civil procedure rules uh, since Wolf. Of course, if, if the um, witness statements did then become a lot shorter because everything was in a chronology of documents or something, um, that would be the the um, the makers of these rules would be quite happy, wouldn't they? Because that really seems to be part of the intention. Uh, I suppose my problem with it is the question of um, following the story. At some point, you have to bring things together. Um, and so witness said such and such is an important piece of evidence, but the document is an important piece of evidence. So are we going to have yet another uh, piece of paper that ties these things together? Uh, it, 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 
I'm not convinced it's going to save um, a lot of paper if that was the intention. I don't know, what, what, what do you think? I think there's every prospect that this is um, an exercise in shuffling the deck chairs in that you take out things that shouldn't be in a witness statement, but which are things which still need to be there, like the chronology. And you just call it something else. So um, that then leads to the question, will, will that actually have any effect on costs? If in effect, we are just perhaps diminishing your witness statement budget, but you need to spend more time on issue statements of case or disclosure, perhaps. Um, so it may be a question of transferring it from one box to the other for cost budgeting purposes. It's, yeah, it, yeah, the budgets will have to be uh, carefully thought out to take account of that. What about the notion that um, this is just yet another weapon with which to attack your opponent? So that as soon as you get a witness statement in, the first thing you do is put a team onto it to say, does it look as though this has been made in compliance with the, the practice direction or can we have a, a, a pop at them for that? I, I think this is another form of satellite warfare about to embark upon. If we think back to the Mitchell disaster, which occurred relatively quickly after the 2013 reforms, um, in effect, the, the Mitchell line of authority was readily weaponized. This is going to be exactly the same. I mean, the, the, the key provision, it seems to me, is paragraph 3.2, which deals with the fact that you have to list the documents that your witness has seen uh, when preparing the witness statement. And this goes to the psychobabble aspect of how has their memory possibly been changed or reinforced by what they've seen subsequent to the events in question. But it, it, it should be um, very much the case, I'd have thought, that that list will prove to be deficient for one reason or another, because particularly if you're starting with this, this, this practice direction in May 2021, when you've been in the case for three years, how on earth will you know what the witness has seen in the, in the last three years or have an accurate list? And people will be able to look at the witness statement and say, well, aha, we, we, we don't believe in your list of documents um, because we think it's readily apparent from the context of the witness statement, he must have seen more and therefore your list is deficient and therefore we then springboard that for application of a sanction. And I think the point also would, would be this, um, how central is the witness statement to um, someone's case? As I say, sometimes these witness statements might be thought to be the froth on the documents, but some of them will be absolutely essential to proving someone's case, absent which it might fail at trial. So there's a lot to play for, I think, in terms of compliance points. And of course, the more rules there are, the more provisions, the more paragraphs, the more potential to get things wrong, and the more scope for satellite applications. And then, of course, as the, um, as the recipient of this witness statement, you have a sort of tactical choice. Do we, do we keep these uh, defects which we think are there um, for cross-examination, or do we make an application now to have the whole thing struck out? I can see endless games um, coming from, from this. I, I think that's a very fair point, Jeremy, because if you're, if you're um, given something which you think is going to prove to be a gift in that you can show to the irritation of the trial judge multiple points of non-compliance at trial, that might have the effect of dropping the hydrogen bomb rather than perhaps an early application mm -hmm. where um, somebody might take the opportunity to put right the faults uh, and then in effect move on from the procedural non-compliance. 
Uh, any thoughts, Andy, from the um, the cost point of view, particularly? Uh, uh, one short one and, and one um, one slightly longer. The um, I mean that was a really helpful exposition for me because you know obviously we are we're very much tail end Charlie's with this this kind of thing um, when it comes to assessment certainly, but but with with their involvement increasingly with budgeting, not so much. So the, the short point is obviously as, as you've uh, alighted upon. Um, a lot of people start work on a witness statement very early. The groundwork's done very early. It's a have to revisit that um, to comply with this in a long-running case. Is is clearly going to involve an increase in cost of an amount of necessary duplication or revisiting. Um, so that's point number one. The other is the um, the fact that that weaponization of uh, potential non-compliance will probably bleed into detailed assessment in the very many cases that settle after exchange of witness statements, but before trial. Um, because, you know, when it comes to uh, applications for revision downwards on, on budget, say, for example, or where there is no budget, um, the uh, unreasonableness of the, uh, uh, of the incurrence of, 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 of a large amount of costs on witness statements, which can be shown to be uh, non-compliant or can be argued to be non-compliant, is a cost judge's nightmare because you're starting to try issues in the case that you settled, which they all hate, um, even though they've got jurisdiction to do it. So that's that's uh, they're, they're my um, um, that's my little bit of froth on top of your excellent <laughs> summary. Perhaps the one benefit will be that we won't see um, entries in a bill of costs for um, considering the sixth draft of the witness statement of a minor witness. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, anyway, I mean that's interesting talk and not. Goes much wider, obviously, than um, than costs, um, and an interesting development. Um, interesting to see in practice how it works, and whether it then gets extended to other um, areas of work. Um, moving on to the next topic, we were thinking of talking about, which is the question of informed consent on a Solicitors Act assessment. As I mentioned, commercial practitioners might be thinking, well, that's just about um, low-value personal injury claims, which is the, the, the field of um, decisions so far. But it's just possible that uh, checkmylegalfees.com will be gunning for you in a large commercial case. So don't, uh, don't switch off at this point. Andrew. Yeah, um, it, it's interesting, Jeremy, because... In a sense, this was predictable as a consequence of the 2013 reforms and in particular the abolition of the coverable success fee between the parties because either solicitors um, gave up on success fees or any shortfalls in cost or in fact they um, had to, um, to move to a, a mode of charging uh, for solicitor-owned client costs and this was particularly acute in the field of personal injury litigation which in a sense led the way. The other aspect, of course, was that historically solicitors acting in personal injury litigation tended to content themselves with the costs they got back from the insurance. They tended not to send clients a bill. So when the 1st of April dawned on a bright and sunny day, 2013, things were set up for a perfect storm of solicitors who weren't necessarily au fait with how to bill their clients, uh, weren't au fait with what explanations they had to give to their clients, yet at the same time were creating conflicts with their clients several years down the line when the case ultimately settled. And um, various firms saw a market for this. They started pushing into the market. And so you had um, litigation really exploding in the last four years 
uh, in the personal injury field. Having said that, it's wider than that, because the sort of arguments which are being, being deployed in these cases... Can, can, can I just interrupt you for a moment, Andrew, because um, we're not referring to cases and, and references at the moment and probably won't do so because it's not terribly helpful, but we will be sending out after the, uh, the call a, a list of authorities and a note of, of what is said today. So that's just for the, those who are, who are watching. Sorry. Not at all, no. So, so um, as I say, the, it started in personal injury, but the arguments of wider application. And I suppose what the personal injury cases illustrate is that you've got at, at, at its heart this problem. A conditional fee agreement, which provides for hourly charges and a successful based on hourly charges, but in cases which will only ever recover fixed cost. So there's going to be a shortfall in the ordinary way between the uh, contractual agreed fee and the cost you're going to get back from the opponent to litigation. So all of the arguments relate to what the client has to be told and the client has to agree to. Um, to enable you to lawfully make a deduction from their damages um, to cover that gap. And the arguments can be put in various ways. One of them relates to the requirement in the Solicitors Act to have a written agreement permitting you to do so on Section 74. Another set of arguments relate to the assumptions or presumptions which apply on solicitor own client assessments under Rule 46.9. And then someone threw into the mix at one stage the notion of fiduciary duties and that the solicitor as a fiduciary couldn't do X, Y and Z uh, when advising their client. Um, and the two particular cases um, which have been dealt with in the last year, the case of Belsner and the case of Swan, really boil down to this point. When you're, you're contemplating a client who'll probably get a, a shortfall, between their recovered costs and their contractual costs. Do you have to say to the client at the outset, um, your costs are probably going to be X, we're only going to recover Y, and the shortfall is going to be Z? Or can you say, um, there will be a shortfall, don't know how much, but it's going to be no more than Z because we put some sort of cap or limitation in the agreement. And however you dress it up, you come back to that essential point. But I, I, I think what this uh, chain of litigation has done is, as I say, it bleeds through into other areas of practice. Let me give you a particular example, which is concerning me at the moment. In commercial cases, um, there have to be, as we know, cost budgets, cost management orders in a certain tranche of them. If you have a situation where um, you're going down that route, how deeply do you have to involve the client in the cost budgeting approach? Some solicitors will take the view that cost budgeting is a dirty business, which the client doesn't need to worry about. But if you've got a situation where, you know, you put in a budget of half a million, um, the cost judge or managing judge says you can actually have 400,000 by way of cost management order, then what do you do about the, the, the missing 100? Because if the client is unaware of the shortfall, then the client will have an armory of weapons to use at any solicitor in client assessment uh, to try and argue that they shouldn't be responsible for that. Conversely, if the client's um, given budgets, if they're approved budgets, if they're shown the final budget and they want the solicitor to crack on anyway, the solicitors have got a very powerful 
um, defence to any argument that these costs haven't been expressly agreed and therefore are reasonable for the purposes of any solicitor and client assessment. So although we're, we're focusing in the current litigation on the PI sector, the, the arguments here, I have no doubt, no doubt whatsoever, will be adopted more broadly in commercial litigation as well. And that might also have a knock-on effect in the sense that uh, if the budget has been reduced, if you like, before it's even presented for tactical reasons, again, the, the client needs to be closely involved in that process not to have um, a weapon over, with which to hit the solicitor over the head somewhat down the line. And that's very often in cases where the client's going to have to pay um, costs anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Any thoughts on, on this, Andy? Um, well, I, I mean, I, I, I absolutely agree with the crossover into commercial work. We haven't yet, um, in our narrow experience, um, been instructed in many, if any, um, major solicitor-client disputes in commercial litigation centering on this. But it's, you know, it, it, it's coming down the, down the line. You know, it's like we always say to our solicitors, it's kind of, you know, the... Uh, the opposite of winning the lottery, you know, sooner or later, this big hand's going to come out of the sky and say, you know, it's your turn. <laughs> and uh, um, uh, when you do, you, you, you get involved with informed consent. Golly, how long have we been involved with informed consent? I feel like Rumpole and Bloodstains, you know, Dougal and Boot, Esther, Esther Kim and all that. One of your great victories, Jeremy. Um, uh, but, but, but yes, it's, uh, um, I mean, it gives me the shudders and, you know, I'm not even the solicitor on the hook for this, this, this sort of thing. So um, uh, what it must do to the profession is nobody's business. But it does show how these things are fashion, isn't it? Because it, it has been a while since that's been a major issue. And it's now, uh, as Andrew says, since 2013, come back. Um, yes. And, and the only other, it, it, obviously, the, the, in publication cases, the recovery of success fees has, has, has extended for a bit longer. And so, therefore, the tail and the the, the, the tail of that is is uh, is perhaps a little bit extended. Um, it's funny. I, I mean, I would say that, wouldn't I? But um, it, it does seem that base costs seem to have gone up a bit in those cases since success fees haven't been recoverable. And Andrew will be pleased to know that um, McDougall was essentially a Manchester case. Yes. <laughs> Um, at, a, at, a, at a lower level in the sense of the judicial hierarchy, been a couple of cases um, recently in which different approaches have been adopted to budget variations under CPR 315A. Uh, any comments on that, Andrew? They may not show anything of, of great principle, but perhaps just illustrate different approaches. Yeah, I, I, I think they are interesting, um, Jeremy, because... Um, in effect, applications to vary budgets have been like the proverbial hen's teeth in the last few years, at least. And there's a number of reasons for that. Um, the first reason is, of course, there's this tension, if not contradiction, at the heart of cost budgeting. There's the, the notion that you set the budget really at the start of the case, as far as the court's concerned, and it provides certainty for the other side to litigation. And then there's the other factor, which um, has to certainly be borne in mind, which is that very few people have a reliable crystal ball at the start of a case. 
cases do develop and therefore you need to have flexibility within the process because otherwise the results might be unfair to hold someone to a budget which is set at a very different time and on the basis of different assumptions. And if you like, um, cost variation is meant to be the, the, the bridge between the two principles whereby you can vary but within limits the budget that's being set. Um, and um, to that extent, I think the, the, the judiciary have made a rod for their own backs by the new provisions from last October, which have emphasised the importance of variations of budgets, because in essence, it's going to require more court time to resolve. And of course, although um, once costs are budgeted, they remain forever budgeted, so it doesn't really matter at that stage. Um, when the, the, the budgeting, the second budgeting hearing takes place. The idea is really that this is prospective and you're looking forward to managing costs in advance. That's the whole raison d'etre. On, on the two cases, um, Master McLeod in the case of Thompson, I think took a relatively benevolent approach to variations of budgets in a way that I'm not sure um, the majority of judges necessarily would, but the facts of that case were slightly unusual. In effect, the budget was set, and then there were a lot of surprising developments in the month before the first budgeting hearing, and then it was explained that there were various good reasons why this matter wasn't addressed um, at, at some earlier stage or even at that, that first hearing. In the other case, the Persimmon Holmes one before Master K, a very different approach, I think, um, as you foreshadowed, because the emphasis there was almost on a sort of black letter jurisdictional approach, namely that unless it was established that there was, you know, um, a proper basis for the variation in terms of a significant development, and the application was made promptly, then the claimant just didn't get through the gate in terms of the um, the, 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 the promptness requirements. And um, I think I would say that that is also surprising because, um, again, from the beginning, the emphasis was um, cost budgeting, cost management is light touch. Um, and you're, you're, you're only ever providing a sort of overview or ceiling um, to the approach. And you're not really perhaps meant to treat this as a sort of substantive clash of the titans uh, when arguing the, the case at, uh, at a cost uh, management hearing or a variation uh, cost management hearing. But I, I suspect that rather than cite these cases in a skeleton argument, I think what it's useful is as a sort of illustration as to how some of the arguments can play out in front of certain judges. And again, I don't think either of these judges would pretend that they were establishing points of principle which were of larger uh, application than on the cases uh, that they were dealing with. Also, the context might be um, quite interesting. I mean, the first, the, the one in which a more generous approach was adopted was a case of a serious head injury, um, which turned out to be even more serious than it had been thought, so will attract sympathy. The other one was a professional negligence case against a firm of solicitors. Now, I don't think the fact it was against a firm of solicitors would have affected it, but it was you know, a commercial case, so in, in quite a different sphere. Uh, and also in that case, the, 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 um, the master did leave open the possibility for <coughs> an application for a, a detailed assessment based on, on good reason. So that may be um, the out that one, uh, well, one certainly will be the out that one goes for if uh, budget variation is refused. And, uh -huh. Sorry. And 
I was going to say that one of the ways that this, this problem of promptness and variation can be sidestepped is if in the directions timetable you build in that there will be variations at certain stages, pre-trial review, second CCMC or whatever, so that, so that in effect you don't need to worry about the, the jurisdictional hurdles. People are going to assume that things have changed um, since, since the first hearing. Yes. I mean, I think it, the, the interplay with, um, with good reason and assessment is, is interesting because um, they, they've definitely toughened up since October. We all know that. It's now, well, you know, we have this sort of must and shall sort of debate going on. But um, uh, nevertheless, the, the, the good reason jurisdiction on detailed assessment remains intact. It's not reliant upon somebody having made an application. You know, uh, it, it, it's there. And certainly in, in one case where we had, um, we were opposing a, a budget variation application made about the day before the trial was supposed to start. Now, we, we knew that that was allowed. In fact, I think it was Mr. Justice Burse who, who, who sort of said you could do it any time up to handing down a judgment, you know, even after the case had been heard. Um, it was more, so our argument was more um, about is this appropriate? You know, by now, the vast majority of the costs that are subject to the um, significant development, and there was no argument about whether there had been a significant development or not, um, have been incurred. So therefore, it is more appropriate that a cost judge looks at this detail now than a QB master does on the, uh, you know, in, a, in, a, in an hour and a half's appointment the day before the trial when there were several noughts involved. Um, so uh, to, to that extent, um, I think it's just a question of, um, uh, I, I rather imagine that despite the fact that the changes will be, um, will, will be utilised to try and, you know, sort of introduce some sort of a stopple point uh, about it, but that nevertheless, it, it's uh, in the circumstances of some cases, it's just about who's in the best position to make the, to make the right decision about whether a budget should be uh, uh, should, should should be increased or not, um, and quite commonly, I think the uh, it, it will be a cost judge who who has to who has to do that. I, I think that's a very interesting point because you're absolutely right. There are two routes here. There's the the application for permission, if you like, and then the application for forgiveness on detailed assessment. Um, and there is a temptation, I think, amongst some judges to try and cross the streams. How can there be a good reason if you didn't apply when there was a significant development and so on? And I think that needs to be emphasised. These are two different routes, two different sets of criteria. And, and as you say, um, you know, do, doing it in just before the trial may, may not be as satisfactory as doing it properly on a detailed assessment. Um, if you, if um, if there's a lot of money at stake, yeah, it'd be good if the test for resolving that the conflict between the two routes were who's in the best position to make a sensible decision. Um, I have a horrible feeling it it may not pan out that way. I, I mean, the other point of it is, which is that you know this is as as we've discussed before on on uh, on, on other uh, occasions. Um, this does really the new provisions. To bring the sharp and blank uh, principle into law, really, whereas before it, it, it wasn't, um, and it was persuasive and everybody liked it. But you can quite understand that where now that 
in relation to what might be quite a lumpy element of cost. Um, the managing judge has the ability to effectively approve incurred costs or an element of incurred costs. Um, to what extent would they need require to be satisfied to that that, that is reasonable? Um, without going into the amount of detail they're not supposed to go into. Yeah. Simple as that, really. Um, the, the final thing we were going to just refer to, um, acknowledge, was um, Master Gordon Saker's um, suggestion at the end of a very long judgment um, that might one day be cost management of experts' fees as a, an independent topic. Um, the... The fees in question were 22 and a half million, I think, in that case. So one can perhaps see the point. The, the thing that actually struck me most about judgment was the um, implied approval of the uh, accountants, the, the accountancy professions practice of charging in 15 minute units. But uh, any comments, Andrew? Um, it, it's interesting, Jeremy. I mean, if you go back far enough, I remember there was a proposal to um, prescribe fees for experts for legal aid cases. Um, and I remember appearing in front of various judges in various contexts over the years, um, some of whom would say, well, you know, it, it, you can't have this fee. You have to shop around for an expert. Others saying to, well, if I don't give you this fee, then the expert won't turn up at trial. And then where will we be? Um, and I think, I suppose what it comes down to is the recognition that there's not a market for experts. There are markets for experts. Um, consultant orthopedic surgeons who do medico-legal work are very common. Consultant neuropsychiatrists are, are much less common. If you move that into the commercial sphere, there may be any number of forensic accountants who can do a job, but there may be very fewer forensic accountants who understand how cryptocurrencies work. Um, and against that backdrop, you know, I think you have to to soften your approach to deal with the fact that there will be these subtleties when it comes to, to dealing with experts' fees. It reminds me actually of a, a case I was involved in with um, Master Gordon Saker, who wasn't then the senior cost judge, uh, about the assessment for legal aid purposes of the claimant's fees in the MMR litigation. And now that was a highly complex, very specialist litigation with experts um, who were truly, you know, top in their field in the world, uh, flying over from America. And uh, Master Gordon Saker, who obviously, um, when he travels to America, goes uh, in, um, in second class, um, was very reluctant to allow the first class fees for these top experts to fly to London for a pretty speculative exercise, um, which uh, we all found quite amusing at the time. Um, Andrew, look, it's been really interesting talking to you and that view um, that you bring to these issues has been, to me, certainly enormously um, illuminative and hopefully to those who are watching. As I say, there will be a note going out of this talk with some case references for those who want to follow them up. And uh, in the meantime, it just remains to, to thank you very much for um, participating in this. Nice to see you as well, Andy. And... Um, we we'll leave it there till the next time. Thanks very much for inviting me. Thanks, Andrew.